So I've read a number of children's Bibles with our kids, and there's one book of the Bible that very few children's Bibles deal with. It's the book of Judges. If you've read the book, one of my kids one time said, hey, I'm reading the book of Judges, and I was like, okay, great. There's some new things I'm going to have to tell you that happen in the world. Because if you've read the book of Judges, it's, it's a pretty explicit and pretty horrific book at times. But the reason that I like Judges is because I think it's like the, almost the entire Old Testament compressed into just a few pages. Because it, you see, what happens in the book of Judges is the people live in the, in the land that God has given them, that he has delivered them, and then they forget God. Their lives go haywire. They begin doing, I want to say unimaginable, but like we can't imagine these things. They start doing these unimaginable things, then they're judged. That's why the book is called Judges, is because they have to have a judge come, and God delivers them again. And then again, they forget God. They forget the lessons that they've learned. They fall into sin again. God judges them. Then they call out for help, and God sends a deliverer. And very few children's Bibles deal with it just because the stories aren't very family-friendly. They're not about animals. They aren't really about success. It's the, the, the book is really about a people that forget God. And specifically in Judge, uh, Judges chapter 8, it says that when, after Gideon died, Gideon is the man who was a scaredy cat that God used to deliver the people of Israel from their enemies with just 300 men. Uh, well, he's the judge, and after he dies, it says the people forgot God. And I love that line, and I love that book, because that's a part of the Bible that's not really far from us. There are some things in the Bible that the names are strange, and there's customs that we don't you know, follow. We don't understand what this is. We don't really understand some of this stuff. And, but we understand that idea of forgetting God. If you've, had, if you've had a child screaming in your face for 30 or 45 minutes at a time, you know what it's like when you like, forget God, and you're just trying to figure out, how do I fix this situation? I know I've, we've been, I've been in there. We've been in this situation where like 45 minutes later, an hour later, you realize, God, I have acted like you don't exist. And the, my whole world is caught up in me fixing this problem with a rebellious child. Maybe it's not a, a small child, a two-year-old or a three-year-old. Maybe it's a, a grown child. And as you deal with a child that has hurt you, has rebelled against you, has turned away from you, like your whole mind is set on some, something here. And then later you realize, God, I, I have acted as if you don't have anything to do with this. Maybe it's a problem in, a, in your marriage. You get in a fight, get in a, go into a season, and you act like God does not exist and cannot do anything about it. Proven, because if you're like me, you get into a situation sometimes, and you've proven that you think that God doesn't exist because you don't find yourself ever praying. God, can you salvage this? Can you restore this? God, can you deliver this? Today, we're going to be looking at uh, Psalm 18 in a section that deals with this temptation that you and I have. They had it back in the book of Judges. David had it in the book of Psalms. And you and I have it today. That temptation in some area of our life here in 2022 to live as if God does not exist. So go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 18. Today we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 45. If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there to Psalm 18. If you don't, we're going to have the verses on the screen so you can follow along. Psalm 18, 35. So we're David, 
He's in a season of peace, but he's remembering something. Verse 35, you, God, make your saving help my shield, and your right hand sustains me. Your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursued my enemies and overtook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You, God, armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight, and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as wind-blown dust. I trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. Let's pray. God, we know the temptation when the times are good to take the credit and to think that our lives are all about us and we forget you. And when things go bad, God, we think that we have to control the world or we turn away to some other promise, some other God, real or imagined, to, to, to try and deliver us. And so we confess, Lord, that we need you to help us look to you in the good and the bad so that we don't forget you and lose our way. In Jesus' name, amen. This, these verses here in the book of Psalm, Psalm 18, call us to look at God, not ourselves. But that's the, the message, we could say it's the message the world tells us. It's also the message of our heart. But the message the world tells us is, look at yourself, look in your heart, look at your gifts, look at what you want to do, look at your dreams, focus on yourself. If there's a problem at home, Ignore everybody else and look at yourself. Look inward. Fix it by looking at yourself. Or if you, if you want to know, the, the, but the temptation of our hearts is also to say, I think in this age, I will deliver myself. I will be, I'm going to do it with hard work. I'm going to do it by just by doing it longer than everybody else. I can do this. It's this temptation to look away from the world to look in on ourselves, but ultimately to look away from God and look at ourselves. But this passage here in Psalm 18, this is David at one of the high points of his life saying, like calling to himself to not trust in himself. This is David when everything is finally worked out. We have, over the last two summers, we've been going through the Psalms where David has been in despair, where God, he has said, God, it seems like your promises aren't coming true. Where are you at? But at this moment, when David could be tempted to say, look, I finally did it. I finally overcame my enemies. I finally delivered my family. I finally have peace. David is turning his attention, not inward, but instead upward. And it is a call to you and I to look not at ourselves, but to look at God. What I want to show you here in this passage is three ways that we build our trust in God in these verses. Three ways that we build our trust in God. First, remember God's salvation so that you will trust him. Remember God's salvation so that you will trust him. Verses 35 to 38 is what lays this out. This section, we've been going slowly through Psalm 18, simply because 50 verses is a lot. 50 verses is a lot to deal with at a time. But in this section, he turns his attention to and uses the word you over and over and over. Notice that. that he, verse 35, he says, you make your saving help my shield. 
and your right hand sustains me, and your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. David is putting his attention on God's salvation. Your translation might say your salvation. Maybe it says your deliverance. It's this idea, God, your salvation is the thing that protects me. God, it is your salvation that has been my shield when I need it. God, it is your right hand that holds me up. I don't have the strength to get through this, but your right hand has been what has done it. He's using all of these images of a broad path for the feet to, to point our attention to it is God and it is his salvation that uh, has given him victory. Because notice in verses 37 and 38, the attention then goes from, you did this, and so I had victory. And he, uses, he explains in verses 37 and 38, victory with different terms. I pursued my enemies and I overtook them. I didn't turn back until they were destroyed. He, here's the image of victory, but he's tracing his victory specifically to God's hand and God's salvation. I, I like the end of verse uh, end of verse 35. Translation might say, your gentleness or your help has made me great. God, it is your loving kindness that has been my help that has given me victory. So David, in the moment of his greatest victory, I am, is saying, God, it's you who has done this. God, your salvation has been the thing that's gotten me this far. And so David is like, like setting himself up and the rest of his life around this idea that it is only by the help of God that I have come this far. You see, the Christian life is always lived from God's salvation. There is a constant temptation to start with the gospel, to start with repent of sin and trust in Jesus to be saved, but then to immediately become, okay, well, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I was actually reminded of that when uh, one of our kids trusted Christ. And I was going to go, okay, well, let's do some new believer stuff. And I looked at like resources for what do you do to walk a kid through on their level, like what it means to be a Christian after trusting in Jesus. And I told Emma, I was like, none of them sound like the gospel. It starts with receive the gift of salvation by repentance and faith, but then it becomes, now start attending church, reading your Bible, praying, and giving. And I was like, I don't actually think any of these, those things are bad, but it doesn't sound like the message of the gospel is all that God has done to save and to help and to guarantee a future home with him in heaven one day. But then the message switches and we begin to say, so you need to start doing this and doing this and doing this and doing this. So, and so it was at that point I realized, oh, it is so hard for us to do what David is doing here, which is to say, God, your salvation has gotten me this far. And so I'm going to trust you that it's going to take me all the way home. It's what we see when we look in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians does say this is what it means to live as a, as a believer. This is what it means to be humble and to be unified in the church. It's what it means to sacrifice and to serve other people. But it's built on, I am confident that he who began a good work in you is going to continue it until the day that he completes it. This, this psalm right here in verses 35 to 38 is a call for us to forget that idea that somehow we can please God on our own and live the Christian life in light of God's salvation. Reminding ourselves, my salva God's salvation is behind me and it's here present with me and it's in front of me. I am going to be rehearsing God's salvation so that I can trust him. 
It's what we saw in Exodus chapter 20 earlier at the beginning of the service. I read Exodus chapter 20 where the Ten Commandments, the most famous list of rules that we know, starts with, I delivered you out of Egypt. This is the the call of God to his people is to remember his salvation so that we can trust him. It is to rehearse the gospel so that it gets down deep in our bones so then we begin to live the Christian life from that. So then when you end up with a challenge at work that is so difficult, some of you, you go to work in the morning or maybe this year you're going to reach that point. You're going to drive into the parking lot at work and you're going to feel that pit in that in the pit of, or that heavy feeling in the pit of your stomach, and you're going to go, how am I going to do this again? How am I going to get through this? David is inviting us to rehearse the gospel so that in that moment where we go, how am I going to do this again? How am I going to face him or her? How am I going to do this again? Instead, we get into that moment and say, I am not alone, and I am not going to forget God, and I am not going to act as if God has nothing to do with this. Some of you, as you parent, whether it's a young child or whether it's uh, adult children, even adult grandchildren, some of you are tempted in those situations to despair, feel like you're dealing with that situation, that, that adult grandchild alone, that's so far from God, that's rejected you, that wants nothing to do with you. This passage says that you need to remember God's salvation so that you will trust him in that situation with that adult grandchild that wants nothing to do with you and that wants nothing to do with Jesus. This this passage says that in your fears, whatever that is that keeps you up at night, it it comes up in the middle of the night and you say, how am I going to get, how am I going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with this bill? How are we going to deal with this diagnosis? How am I going to deal with this fear, this anxiety? This passage is calling you to remember God's salvation so that in that moment, you can trust him. That's the first way that we build our trust in God from this passage. The second way we build our trust in God from this passage is remember God's strength so you will trust him. Look at verses 39 to 42. 39 to verse 42 focuses the attention back on God. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as fine as windblown dust. I trampled them like mud in the streets. This has that same uh, structure of verse, the first verses that we looked at. It starts with God. This is what you are like, and this is what you have done. And then it explains, and so I have had victory. David is speaking for himself, but he's giving this to Israel so that Israel can tell this story in its own history. And then he gives it to us so we can do this in our own lives. Verse 39, he starts with, this is God's strength. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight. And I destroyed my foes. David is saying, the only way I got through this, God, is that you gave me the strength to do it. He's looking back on his past. He's looking back on the season in between defeating Goliath and becoming the king. Where he's running And he's acting, there's a moment where he's acting as if he is mentally ill so that he can live with his enemies at peace. There are moments where he is hiding in caves and his family is back in the land and he's wondering how they're doing. There are moments where the king has his army and they are searching for him. And 
David looks back and says, the only way I got through that is because God gave me the strength to do it. David so easily could have looked back and begun to tell the story. Look at what I did. Look at how great I am. Look at how strong I was to get through this. But instead, David is telling himself, and he's telling Israel, and he's telling us that it is God that gave me the strength for those battles. God is the one who gave me victory. God is the one who fought for me. It is so tempting for you and I to begin to think that we delivered ourselves. We look at difficult situations we've been through in the past, and we begin to shift the story a little bit so that we become the hero, and we go, oh, I just, I was just, we, we were able to get through it. We, I, was, I was able to, to, I was somehow able to make that work. It is a temptation in the Christian life for us to begin to think that God loves us and our Christian life has depended on how strong we are. And David is modeling for us, no, the Christian way is to look back on our stories and say, if I've come this far, God did it. If I've come this far, it is only by the grace of God that I've done it. That's what we see in the life of Paul when Paul tells his story, he says, like, look at all of the things that I was good at. Look at all of the ways that I worked hard and tried to love God and tried to please God and tried to live as a good Israelite. But that is nothing compared to what God is doing in me. There's a call to you and I to, to begin to say, what is the story of my life? It's that God did this. God got me this far. And he will take me home so that we can trust him. Recently, the, our kids were doing a, a lemonade stand, and that day I was actually thinking of the stories of all the business, famous business owners I knew of, and it seemed like everybody's story started with, when I was a kid, I loved to sell things. And then and the, the stories are, always end up, I started this business in my parents' garage, whether it's a company, a, a technology company, or a company like Papa John's, or a company like Jimmy John's, or whatever it is, like all the stories of businesses seem to be, I was so poor and I had nothing and I just happened to get by by the skin of my teeth and I was so gifted and I somehow got through. I was thinking of that, that story because I was like, I wonder like, if that will be any of our kids' stories. But more than that, the, the reality is every business owner, especially an entrepreneur, tells their story as, look at me and how far I've come. Sometimes I wonder, did they all really start in their parents' garage? Or is this just like the cool way to tell your story? You just have to be like, I was poorer than everybody else. You know, I had to walk uphill both ways just to sell candy bars at school. Kind of a detail. Because when it comes to telling our stories, we, we tend to do this in a way like, look at my strength. Look at what I got my way through. This passage says, no, that's not David's story. Is not him saying, look at how far I've come. Man, I started not in my dad's garage. I started in my enemy's cave. You know, I, I came so far. Like, I, I came up from nothing. When David tells his story, he says, God did this. God did this. And so David looks back at God doing this and then says, let's trust him. God is the one who gave me strength, so I'm going to trust him to give me strength in the future. I, I'm going to begin to look at my life not as, well, look at what we've done, but look what God is doing. One of the ways that we do this in our house is we, we, before bed, we usually read the Bible, pray, and we usually sing a song. But once or twice a week, we take some time. Sometimes it's just because we're short on time, just to be honest with you. But, but we also do this on purpose. We, we take a moment and we go around and say, what is something you are thankful to God for? 
This is not something that we've always done. My counselor had me begin doing this personally. But we began doing this in our house because it's easy to just go, what do you like in your life? What is going well in your life? But when we begin as a family to go around, you could do it around the table, you could do it before bed. Sometimes you could just ask the question, but begin to say, what are you thankful to God for? It directs our attention away from what's going well and to what is God up to in your life? So then we can trust him that, oh, God is the one who has gotten me this far. And because when we begin to pay attention to that and tell the story of what God is up to in our home, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our church, when we begin to say, what is, what is our church thankful to God for? We begin to be say, God is the one who is up to something. It's not us that's up to something. And so we can thank God that he is at work in each other's lives. He is, we can thank God that he's at work in our kids and in our kids' ministry. We can thank God that he's at work in our Sunday school classes or in our deacons, in our benevolence, in one, one of our, whatever the ministry happens to be. When we begin to go, actually, it is God's strength that our church is now 183 years old or 93 years old. Or it, it is God's strength that has kept us from so many different roads that we could have gone down. Only God has preserved us this far. And let's remember his strength so that we will trust him. That's the second way that we build our trust in God. And then the third way in this passage that we build our trust in God is remember God's peace so that you will trust him. Look at verses 43 to 45. This is where he turns his attention to God again. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me as soon as they hear of me. They obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. Verse 43, he says, you have delivered me. God, you, different translations are going to translate that, but the center idea is, God, you're the one that's finally giving me peace. David was unwilling to attack the king before him because he said, if God anointed him, then God can remove him. I'm not going to do that. And so David looks back here and says, God, you're the one that's given me peace. You're the one that's even given me peace with my enemies. The foreigners that, want, that would just try to rebel against my kingship. Those who would want nothing to do with me. Those who would attack me. God, you've even given me peace with them. And so David is saying, God, you made me king. You gave me peace. And so now I have peace. So Dave, what David is, I think, modeling for us, he's modeling for Israel, is to, in moments of peace, remember that God did it so that we will trust him. When, when we find ourselves in moments of peace, David says, remember that God did this so that you're going to trust him when you're longing for peace. In, in, the, like, in those days when you're not being slandered, remember that it is God who has done this so that in those days that you're slandered, you can trust God. When, when you're not at odds with your family, when you're not fighting anymore. Remember that God did this so that one day when there is another family fight that's so bitter and so difficult, you'll trust him to be at work even in that. In those moments when, you're, when your kids are not rebelling, remember that God is the one who did this so that you'll trust him in the moments that they do. You see, it is so tempting for us to just get at ease with peace and think it belongs to us, and then we forget God. And David says, no, in every moment, remember that it is God that did this so that you will trust him and that you will walk with him. 
I'm, I'm reminded that in Heath Lambert's book, Finally Free, it's actually a book about freedom from pornography. He talks about the hardest people to counsel, actually, are people that have like beaten an addiction. And he says the reason is because when you have dealt with a life-gripping addiction and then you find freedom from that, then you begin to like turn inward, become proud, and look down on everybody else who struggles. Because the only sin you saw was your addiction, whether it was alcohol or drugs or pornography or whatever that is. Lambert points out, he was like, when we confine our lives and begin to focus our, our attention on, I have one sin that I must overcome, then when we find freedom from that, then we like, forget that there's a whole constellation of ways that we can rebel against God. And then we look down on everybody else for their anger or for this or for that. I've seen that temptation in my own life. As the Lord began, began to set me free from some of the anger that was gripping my heart, began to look down on everybody else who struggled with anger. As if that was the point. And because what can happen is we begin to like, get, find freedom and then actually forget the one that set us free. This passage here, verses 43 to 45, says, remember God's peace so you don't forget Him. So you don't forget that He's the one who did it. Remember His strength so that you don't forget Him and forget that He's the one who gave it to you. Remember God's salvation so that you don't forget Him and you begin to go back to that source of peace. You go back to that source for strength. You go back to that source for salvation. I mentioned earlier one of the ways we can do that in our homes is to begin to have conversations about what are you thankful to God for. Personally, it becomes really helpful to regularly list and say, God, these are the things that I'm thankful for. I'm not sure if it's an American thing. I'm not sure it's an Illinois thing. I'm not sure what. But it's easy for us to keep mental lists of all the things that are wrong in the world, that are all wrong in our families, that are wrong in our workplaces, that are wrong in our churches. But I think that this passage calls us to begin to keep thankful lists. This is God. This is what you're up to. Sure, there are ways for me to grow, our family to grow, our church to grow. There are things that should be changed. But God, I want to be looking and remembering your salvation and your strength and your peace. And one of the ways to do that is to begin to keep lists Keep list of God, this is what I'm thankful for. It might be as simple as cups of coffee. It might be something as simple as finally getting to sleep at night. Or it could be something that's big. But, whatever, but when we begin to look at the world, remembering God so we don't forget him and so that we can trust him, then I think we begin living out what David is calling us to here in Psalm 18. So Psalm 18, it calls us to look at God, not at ourselves. It calls us to remember God so that, we don't, so that we trust him in the future. This is what David wrote. This is kind of the story of his life when he becomes king. This is a story that he tells Israel. But this here in Psalm 18 isn't enough, is it? It's not enough for David to remind himself of this. Because we know that later he's going he's gonna to commit adultery and murder. There are going to be moments in David's life where he forgets God and does not trust God. And so Psalm 18 isn't enough for David. It's, it's not enough for Israel either, right? Israel walks away from God, forgetting God over and over and over. It's one of the messages of the prophets. Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea specifically are all like, you have forgotten God. And they go into exile. 
You see, the writing of the Bible doesn't stop with Psalm 18 because Psalm 18 is not enough. It's not enough because simply telling Israel and simply telling Christians to trust God and remember all that he has done doesn't give us the ability to trust God as he deserves. It's the same in our lives. Psalm 18 is not in, if Psalm 18 is not enough, then what is enough? The good news is that the Bible doesn't stop with Psalm 18. Because Israel needs to learn and we need to learn that the problem with us is not just out there. It's in here. It's not our parents and it's not our government and it's not our culture and it's not our situation. The problem is our hearts. Our hearts are dead in sin, enslaved to rebellion against God, and we will constantly forget him and turn away from him. Who can save us from the sin that corrupts every part of us? Who can give us the strength to be able to want and love God like he he deserves? Who can make peace between God and us that's permanent and that lasts longer than our remembering? And it's only Jesus. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died, and was raised to life as the firstborn from the dead. And then that becomes our story when we repent of sin and trust in Jesus. This this passage that tells us we should trust God and remember God gives us the ability to do that when our salvation is won by Jesus. Our strength comes from the new hearts that he gives us and our peace with God is impermanent. Maybe today that needs to become your story. Maybe today needs to be the day that you repent of sin and trust in Jesus for the first time. Maybe you've heard it before or maybe you say, I have never heard it this way before. This means that you turn from yourself and your rebellion against God and then believe that he will receive you only because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Being saved means that you trust in nothing else to save you. Not in obedience, not in baptism, not in trying harder, not in remembering. It is in trusting Jesus only to save you. If that's you today, let today be the day of salvation where you give up everything else and you receive God's salvation and you receive a permanent strength on the inside when the Holy Spirit comes inside and you receive peace with God that is permanent and that's won by Jesus and he guarantees I will bring you to be with me one day. Let today be the day of salvation for you. So this passage, it calls us to look at God, not ourselves. Ultimately, when we look at Jesus and not ourselves, we find the power and the ability to trust God as we ought. I want you to imagine what it's like to be changed on the inside. So we don't walk through our Christian life trying harder to remember and trust God, but where we have the Holy Spirit living inside us reminding us, God is at work in you. God is at work in you, finishing what he has started. He has saved you in the past, and he's going to bring you home one day. God saved you in the past and has strength for you today and tomorrow. God has made peace between himself and you, and nothing can come between you. Imagine the change that comes when your strength and peace doesn't come from how much sleep you get, doesn't come with how, with how the situations and the relationships in your life work. Remember, imagine what changes when the victory in your life comes because you simply look at God, look at Jesus and not yourself. That sounds like good news. Let's pray. God, as we look at your word and are reminded that you are a God who saves, that you're a God who gives strength, and you're a God who gives peace, we pray that that would be our our 
daily reminder this week. In Jesus' name, amen.